Well, I'm going to take a couple minutes, well, maybe more than a couple minutes, at this point to tell you a story. Uh, I hadn't planned to do this, but you folks know that we make that trip up to Minnesota periodically. And I want to thank everybody who has prayed for us on that trip up and back because your prayer was prayers were answered. We needed the Lord to intervene for us. And he did. He's faithful. I and mean, so are you for praying about those that travel. So don't think that that's a useless thing to do. It's an important thing to do. Now, some of you know that some years ago, maybe four or five years ago, I became notorious in uh, Lafayette, Indiana, for being the driver that hit a tombstone. <laughs> and that was not real exciting to be as we took the car into the Ford dealer and they basically redid the front end. And I thought, well, that's the only time I will ever run into anything in the lane on my, on the highway. Ha! The Lord's got a sense of humor, I want to tell you. Uh, Madison, Wisconsin. If you know anything about Madison, uh, you think you're just coming out of the woods and coming back from Minneapolis and heading towards Chicago, so you're gradually accelerating the number of cars on the road and so on and so forth. And right there at Madison, the road is eight, at least eight, maybe ten lanes wide. And everybody is cruising through. Speed limit's 70, so that's what everybody was doing. There's eight lanes. Two of them go off toward Milwaukee with an expressway to Milwaukee. Two of them have major roads going to Madison. And two of them go straight to Chicago, towards Chicago. And this whole thing here is with, with various exit ramps and sides and all kinds of stuff. Well, I'm cruising along right in the traffic and all of a sudden there's some black thing in front of me on the, on the road. And I look and it's a pipe elbow, I think. I didn't get a chance to examine it very thoroughly. <laughs> In the middle of the road, a, one of those black pipes, you know, the steel pipes you have for in the basement. And I looked at it and I said, if I swerve and try and get around this thing, I'm going to cause one of the, one of the largest accidents they've seen here, here ever. The traffic was trucks and cars and it was solid. So I had to make another quick decision. Wreck or hit it. And I just decided quickly, I hope to clear it. I thought maybe it might just be small enough that I'd get right by it. I'd put it right in the middle and drive right over it. We didn't. <laughs> there was a noise, a big bang. Juanita was looking for things in her purse at the time and came awake quickly. <laughs> but the strange thing was there was no change in the car. No change in performance in the car. We're still cruising at 70 miles an hour. The engine's going great. Everything seems to be fine. We could hear something. Something was flapping. And I didn't know what it was. I knew the tires were still good because I would have heard, would have heard about that quickly. But I didn't. So, what do you do? Well, first thing I do is thank the Lord. Say, thank you, Lord. And I'm cruising along. The thing hadn't even slowed down. And the steering's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's going just the way it was going before. And so I'm moving along. But I'm thinking, that thing probably went right through the oil pan and the engine. The oil is rapidly draining off of there, and it should be a very few miles before that thing seizes up and I pull off to the side. So I look at the, at the dashboard. You know, all those lights, they tell you when nothing's wrong, but they tell you a lot when it is wrong. 
And I'm looking at it, it's just blank. Nothing's showing on the thing. And I say, well, maybe, maybe it made it back to the gas tank and I'm losing gas. But I'm looking and the gas, the gas gauge is staying right where it was. I didn't know what in the world to think. What does the computer say to us? Well, it didn't say anything. So I keep going. And I'm getting suggestions from Juanita that I ought to stop and look and see what that was. And I said, as long as this thing is going, is this well, we're continuing. And sure enough, we went roaring right through the rest of Wisconsin onto the Illinois Tollway and straight down there, no problems. And we got uh, Palatine to our daughter-in-law Terry's house where we were staying, pulled into the driveway and stopped. And I said, there, that was good, wasn't it? So we get out and we're looking around the car. I figured there'd be something hanging off the car that probably bounced up and knocked off a fender or something. Didn't. Car looks fine. Well, I got down and looked under the car and there was something hanging down. And I didn't know what it was because we'd heard this flapping noise. Juanita had particularly heard it. <laughs> I didn't see any reason to stop as long as the car was running that well. So we made it all the way into Chicago. Well, my daughter-in-law joined the chorus and she got out there with her, her camera and crawled around under the car, took a picture of this thing, and there it is hanging down. And I, I had looked under there. I could see something hanging down, but I didn't know what in the world it was. I did know it wasn't a muffler, because I'd have heard that if I'd knocked that off. So we're talking about that, and she starts calling to see if she can find somebody to look at it. Oh, this is the end of the day. Everybody's shutting down. So I said, well... We'll take it to the Ford dealer tomorrow and they'll take, they'll see what it is and we'll find out. And then we called the individual that I always think of when I got an engine, when I got a motor vehicle problem. Matt Carter. <laughs> Matt is the man that knows more about cars than anybody I've ever met. Regardless of the, regardless of the one, what model it is or anything else. I said, Matt, and, and Terry had taken a picture of the thing. So you could not identify it still, but you could see something was hanging down. I said, Matt, what do you think this is? And he says, you know, they got a mat underneath the engine nowadays. They, they put that mat under as kind of a heat shield and to keep the dirt from running up into the, into the engine. It's relatively new. They started it about the time you got that car. I said, oh, and what, what happens if, I, if that is not attached? Nothing. So I'm congratulating myself. <laughs> and, but we still got to take it to the Ford dealer. So they took the thing off. It's in the way back of the, of the car right at this point. And I will have Matt take a look at it before we're done, but... I don't think there's anything wrong with the thing. Well, enough of that. That's relatively unimportant. Let's move away from the unimportant and the mundane and go to something that's important. First Peter chapter 3. We're continuing in that series. And Peter starts off with a question that has an obvious answer. Who is there to harm you? If you prove zealous for what's good, that's how this section starts. It has a, an idea of suffering and what the Christian life should be about. Verse 13 through 22 is what we're going to be looking at. Yet today, it seems that people can turn out and protest for people doing things, doing things that are right. We have differences on what's right and what's wrong. And we don't have a Bible to turn to because that would be silly. And people, for instance, the big issue today is, is the Supreme Court going to reverse Roe versus Wade? Are they going to rule against? Ha, <laughs> ha, 
when he has given me the fisheye. Uh, are they going to rule against abortion? Oh, remember there have been people protesting abortion since Roe versus Wade was passed. Every year on the anniversary, there's a crowd of people come down and have a parade in Washington. And I know a number of them that have gone. Hasn't done any good, but they get down there and make, and they are serious about objecting to abortion. So now you have people, you have the pro-abortion people protesting and the abortion people protesting. And it seems as if Regardless of you, if you prove zealous for what's good, that there's not going to be anybody that complains about it. I think, frankly, this is a evidence of the fact that we don't have God to turn to today. But the main thing this section is about is suffering, suffering of some kind. Now, as I thought about this, we bring some suffering on ourselves. We can ruin our ankles and knees by playing enough sports. And it doesn't make much difference what it is. Then we turn around and eat the wrong stuff in quantities that we probably shouldn't. <laughs> and then we compound the felony by stop exercising and eat anything we want. And the only thing to do about that that can make a difference is to go on a diet and hit the gym hard. I'm getting up to that point, I think. There are people that suffer from disease. They didn't bring that on themselves, but the disease happens, and we have been praying hard for people that are in that situation. I think of Mike Merritt dear man that's had a real influence here and elsewhere. Our Greek teacher, of all things, so I think the Greek is on the sideline as it it looks. Mike is in the VA in the high care area. Think of Lois. Lois has suffered some ill effects from the treatment that she is getting for cancer that has existed for a long time. What can you do about disease? You can pray. And it's probably when you come right down to it, it's the only thing that's going to do any good. You can pray and go see the doctor and do what you're told. That's about it. How about misunderstandings? Does that ever produce suffering? <laughs> I think we've all been misunderstood at some some stage or maybe made some poor choices that have generated some problems. We're dealing a little bit for with that in our family. I'm glad we don't have to select a king. We just select a president, and he comes or goes in four years. But it used to be that if there was a contest as to who's going to be king, you can look at the history of England for this. Now, there might be some question about whether he's really in line to be king or this branch of the family is more in line to be king. And so people had to make a choice. Do you favor this one or do you favor the other one? Sometimes it led to an all-out war. Sometimes, most times it led to some real confronted feelings. But one, sooner or later, is declared to be king. The problem was the king had huge power. And he would ferret out the ones that were against him. And he could confiscate their homes and land and the whole business, give it to somebody else. And he did. That's happened in the history of England. So you had a lot on the line when you decided to support A or B for king. Happily, we don't have to deal with that. The focus here in this section is undeserved suffering. 
Sometimes the Lord just sends us suffering for his purposes. His purposes. And we don't know why. But what he wants is our faithful response to that suffering. Has that always been your case or mine? Uh Uh-uh. Sometimes I grouse and complain a lot. Doesn't do any good, but I don't even think it makes me feel better. (laughs) We need to be trying to do good. Now let's look at the, look at the, go back to the verses again. Verse 14. For even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, that's the idea of the righteousness of the Lord. You are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and don't be troubled. <laughs> if you have undeserved suffering happening in your life, remember this. If you're a believer, you're blessed of the Lord. Whoa. I don't feel blessed when I'm have some suffering attached to my life. I look for the reason and try and make a correction, but uh, that's not always possible. And it's possible to suffer for doing the things that we know God wants us to do, following the direction of the Lord. And frankly, even though we think we ought to get some real appreciation for that, we very seldom do from anybody. How about the Muslim countries? How about going there as a missionary? Now, we've got somebody just went left for Cairo to witness for the Lord, to be able to talk to people about the Lord. Christians suffer for their testimony where Muslims are in control. Fact is that this verse tells us that we must keep on. Don't fear their intimidation. Just keep on. Honoring the Lord. We must honor the Lord in spite of the conflict that that suffering gives us. We get some words back about what's going on in Burma. Most people don't get much there. Chris gets regular communication and we talk about it on Wednesdays. Christians are persecuted in Burma today. Note verse 15, and I think this is a really important verse. And I knew this verse. I know something about it. Here's what it says. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone, to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. (laughs) That was one of the reasons I studied the Bible so hard. I wanted to give an answer to anybody that wanted to criticize my Christian testimony. This doesn't say that. It's in the context of this suffering that is undeserved. And it says... A key, key element of this verse that I just passed over quick. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. What does that mean? Sanctify, woo. That sounds like a religious word. It is. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. There's something to be thought about in our hearts. It's the position of the Savior in our hearts. That's what causes me when I have a near-miss accident to say, Thank you, Lord. I know he's there. I know he's in that position. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Now, sanctify is a word about holiness. It's about purity. It's about places where sacrifices are given and are accepted. It's the right place, the right person before God. Sanctify Christ as Lord in our heart. 
That's not in our words and our testimony. It's about the Lord in us, in our heart. Do we think of him first when we face suffering? Or do we do something else? Or do we think something else? This gets into how we think. And the fact of the matter is, if we know the Lord is our Savior, he is in our heart. The Holy Spirit indwells us and presents Christ in our heart to us. And it's up to us to think about him. And I think the question that we have to answer is, do we think of him first when we face suffering? Or do we think, uh, look up the doctor's number? We want to make sure that he's holy, regarded as holy in our heart, regarded as preeminent in our heart. He should be the first thing we think about, particularly when we come to make a hard decision. Lord, do you bless this? Is this the direction we should go? I can still remember an object lesson or a drawing, I guess it was, that I got in Sunday school someplace or other. Maybe it was at Deerfoot. Maybe it was at Grace Chapel in Elizabeth, New Jersey. I don't know. But it's just a picture of a chair. They're easy to draw. Anybody can draw a little chair. But the point was there's one chair in ourselves, in our mind. And the question is, who sits in it? Is that our self that sits in it? And everything we do either benefits or is a detriment to ourselves, or is it Jesus Christ? And the first Sunday school lesson is make sure you have put and enthroned Jesus Christ in his chair in your mind. Mind, And I think, I think this verse saying sanctify Jesus as Lord in your heart gets to that issue. Is he Lord? Is he number one? That verse 14 tells us that all suffering, any suffering that comes is, you are blessed. I guess I don't feel blessed sometimes when that suffering arrives. But then it goes on to say, we, we have to maintain the good conscience that we have. And then it goes on to talk about the verse that we pick up quickly. And that's the part of the verse that I, I really was, be, always be ready to give an answer to those that ask you for the hope that's in you. <laughs> I had answers. I had arguments. I've always had them. I think it's part of being a lawyer. But that isn't what's asked for here. We don't need to destroy every argument that's raised against religion, against Christianity. We don't need to destroy them. God has called us as witness. We're not called to be apologists. It's not up to us to defend God. And I have a number of Bible verses for that defense. It's up to us to have a witness and the evidence, the hope that's in us. In deep suffering, do you evidence hope? I gotta ask myself that. I ask it regularly. We can't argue with everybody that disagrees with us. I don't believe that a person is ever gonna get saved because you've argued them and defeated their argument. At least it hasn't worked for me. So think about that. Then you go on to, well, we we talked about 15 and 16. Verse 17. We're talking about suffering and well-doing. Let's read 17 through 19. For it is better... If God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right 
rather than for doing what is wrong. Now there's a revelation for you. That's another another statement that doesn't require anything. It's better that if you suffer for doing what's right than for doing what's wrong. Indicates that we make a choice of choice about everything that we do and say. And then it goes on to talk about our Lord. And keep a good, good conscience so that in the thing in which you were slandered, those who reviled your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it than you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what's wrong. And then it goes on to the example that we have of Jesus Christ. Now listen to this, verse 18 and 19. For Christ also died for our sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh and made new in the spirit, but made new in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. The example of Jesus Christ. What's our example in suffering? What did he do? He died for our sins, not for any of his own. That's something to dwell on. He is the only person without sin. And he allowed himself to die for somebody else's sin, everybody else's sin, so that we might come to God and one day might be presented to God. He did it once for all. There's not going to be any repeat of this action, this initiated action by God. The just for the unjust. The perfect for us. (laughs) Well, I don't know that we could think of ourselves as perfect. But it brings believers to God in in perfection that he might bring us to God. You know, the Old Testament, you say anybody that saw God is going to die. People did not come into God's presence in the Old Testament. It just wasn't done. Moses was probably the only one, and that was initiated by God. And he prevents us. He is going to present us before the throne in glory where Christ is seated. He's going to do that in perfection, blameless, presented there blameless. And we're still going to know we got plenty to be blamed for, but Christ has taken it all, is what we read in the scriptures. And it's documented by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But made alive in the spirit. Wow. Perfection. Completion. Eternity. He's going to bring us up blameless before the throne. That would make me scared. But it won't. Because I'm part of the person of Jesus Christ and he indwells me. And he introduces me to the Father before the throne, blameless, blameless for all eternity. And it's confirmed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We worship the only person that has ever been resurrected. Tricks happen, but not resurrected and defeated death. And then verse 19 shows up. Isn't that a honey? 
in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now that's a verse that's been abused. It opens people's imaginations to try and say what this is and how the Lord would do this. The word that is called, that is uh, translated the spirits is pneumata. It's a Greek word that is only used of supernatural beings. It is not used of human beings. And we find out who they are right in the next verse. Who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. These should be referred to as the angels, the evil angels who had been cast out of heaven. That's who it refers to. That's who they say it was. They were driven out of heaven because they joined the rebellion of Satan against God, who's going to be equal with God, he wanted to be. And we read in Genesis about these people. They could apparently take on human form. They could apparently enjoy themselves with the beautiful women of the earth at that time. They could produce offspring, which are the, which were the giants of those early years. Sort of makes you wonder about the Greek mythology. Where did that that idea come from. Maybe it came from here. Because almost all the gods, supposedly, in Greek mythology are some sort of a mixture and have evil and good attached to themselves. But they were held pending judgment. They were imprisoned, basically. Until the judgment day, the great white throne judgment, I believe. And the Lord came to that place where they were in prison. Why? I don't know. I'm sure he didn't come to teach them how to say, na, 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 goodbye. The Chicago song for football. They don't sing it very much anymore. The Lord came and proclaimed victory to them. He didn't just rub their nose in their failure. He just proclaimed his victory to them. And the point is that humans in that day, that day of Noah, had a long time to make it, make up their minds about God. A long time. They uh, had lots of time to repent, and they didn't. There were no believers in the world at that time that stood in the flood. That they, no believers died in the flood. Not a one. It was just Noah and his immediate family. Okay, last few verses who once were disobedient, verse 20, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. During the construction of the ark. 120 years about to build that thing. And you can go over and see it in Kentucky. There's a model of the ark. People come a long distance to come and see the thing. And it's a wonderful job. They've had to take some liberties to figure out what they were going to do with all those animals. And you, you can go see all the cages and the feed systems and all the things that they figured out. But the boat itself is big enough to do that. Huge, huge project. You think about it, there were no cranes, there were no labor-saving devices that 
help to build that thing. That was just built from scratch, from nothing, from starting to cut timber and slice boards and collect pitch. To, to, took 120 years to build that thing. And I believe it was 100, 120 years of ridicule of Noah. What are you doing here, for goodness sake? You're building a big boat, and you're building it out in the middle of a field. There's never been water there. What's the matter with you? Well, I'll pay you to go to work on the thing. So he hired people, and they worked on it, and with he and his family. It wasn't a sole project. But you can just imagine the things that were said to Noah for doing that. But the thing that is pointed out to us in this, these last few verses, and it includes a comparison of the flood to baptism. <laughs> Let's look at it. First off, it demonstrates the patience of God. God didn't do anything while fallen angels and humanity was running wild on the planet. He didn't step in and do a thing. God knew all about it, how terrible it was. The giants were born. Noah was ridiculed. Everything just seemed out of control. And God did nothing until the ark was completed. I mean nothing. It was then that the animals started to assemble. And still nobody thought much of it. Boy, that's amazing. Look at that. Look at all these animals coming up two by two. How in the world could that be? They started to assemble, and they were accommodated somehow. And the the I'll leave a demonstration of that to the ark. What a sight that must have been, though. To see all these animals traipsing up and then meekly going up the, up the ramp and going into their accommodation, the cage that they were made up to. And you can go see that. Now, I don't know. I don't know if it's rightly done in Kentucky or not, but they had to do something and they had to feed these animals over a lengthy period when they were floating around on the flood. So they raised good points. And probably there was a bunch of ridicule the whole way through. What are you doing? You're taking all those pets with you? You're going to live in that boat thing with a bunch of animals? And you got to have feed for all those animals? Loading got completed. And the family and Noah were invited to come inside. They had a place to stay. They had built some accommodations for them. Eight people. These eight people were the only ones that believed God through the witness of Noah and his, and his sons. The only ones. They went in probably to the tune of a lot of ridicule. Where are you people going? What do you think is going to happen? You're still sitting here in a field. Now you got a bunch of animals in there that you're trying to feed and take care of. And what are you going? Are you going to live in that place with all those animals? Ha! But then God finally intervened. You know how what the first reference is to? It says God shut the door. When the door is shut, God didn't open it again. He didn't open it to anybody who suddenly had second thoughts about their position on God. That was it. The door was shut. <laughs> and then it started to rain. They'd never seen rain before. The fountains of the earth erupted. And all of a sudden the water started getting deep. 
be nice to be in that big boat. Knock on the door, see if they can get in. Nope. The door was closed by God. It says it was closed. And that was it. And all of them died. Can you imagine that? The entire population of the world was drowned out in that flood. And I'm sure people that had heard about God had some pleas to make, some hope that things were going to turn for them and they could be included with God. No. No one else survived. God did it all for eight people. Whoa. Okay, then we go on from there. You note that it says just that. In which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. I wish that had said something else. That word has been abused and misinterpreted many, many times. Thinking about the power of baptism. Think if we just get somebody baptized, they'd be saved. Baptism will not save you. Not the, it is also not the removal of dirt from the flesh. In other words, it's not a substitute bath. But an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after the angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. What a way to end that. The picture of the flood in this comparison with baptism. Now look, some people have interpreted that to say that baptism of a baby assures their salvation. So if you have an unbaptized child, you're risking, you're risking an eternal loss. So there's a real scramble to be sure that everybody was baptized. Okay, it doesn't work. That isn't the way it, the way it works. This is not true. But what we're talking about with the flood and the ark is a picture of biblical truth. The only ones that survived were in the ark, eight people. The vast majority of the people on the, on the earth died. Now, you can't abuse the picture by having two words in there. The baptism does not save people. It's not true. The water of the flood is the picture of the judgment of God that is valid to this day. The ark, the boat, is a picture of salvation provided by God alone. Note that it was provided, not earned. All of the, but there was work being done to build the ark. But the fact is that with that in view, Baptism is not for cleansing, that is, removing dirt from the body. In other words, we don't bring someone in to be baptized to clean them up. doesn't work that way. But it is a picture being given by God to a believer to show what our salvation means. It's our connection to the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. There's nothing else that may completes that picture. And you've seen enough baptisms. We baptize this way here by immersion. 
Some people say you don't need to do that. <laughs> My grandfather was one of 13, born in Ireland, and they had to separate the kids for some crisis there. And half of them went to the Presbyterian Church, and half of them were in the Brethren. As far as he was concerned, some of them were sprinklers and some of them were dippers. Now, you know, we're the dippers. We believe in baptism by immersion because it covers this picture. The person being baptized goes under the water, identifies with Christ in his death, and then is raised again out of the water to newness of life, demonstrating that we are one with him in his resurrection. Now that is the picture of it. And I think the only, the only form of baptism that shows that picture is immersion. And I say that as someone who was brought up Presbyterian and was properly christened in the Presbyterian Church, so maybe that would prove that that's, I don't know what it proves, doesn't prove anything. But the fact is that baptism and the flood and the ark has some common denominators, and that's what's being laid out here. But we bring it all up to date. The fact that the Lord today is seated on the throne with God the Father in the place of glory. That's where he is. He's waiting until he gets the word that he can come back. That's reserved to God the Father to make that choice. But he's ready to go. And when he comes back, he will come to the air. We could find other scriptures that point to this out. And it's called the rapture. And the church... The entire church, nobody left out, is going to be taken to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord, it says. How do we apply all this? Believers are to live today in complete confidence. There is nothing more that needs to be added to our salvation if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. Nothing to be added. And that applies to past, present, future sin. The fact is, the Lord is seated today on the throne with God the Father in the place of glory. Salvation has been won by Jesus Christ alone, and it's been won forever. There is no rematch. There is no other salvation that's available. None. Just like with Noah and that flood, there was no redoing commitments so that they could be included in the ark. The majority of the people died. The sanctified Christ, where it says, sanctify the Lord God in your heart, The sanctified Christ is to live in our hearts with the appropriate priority. Now, what's the appropriate priority? I guess I would tend to go back to that one chair. Say there's only one chair in your your mind, and who's going to sit on it? You operating for yourself at all costs? Or are you going to enthrone Jesus Christ in that chair? And I think the sanctified Christ belongs in that chair and he has been there in my life for some time I always think of him being in that place it's just like when I had this near accident first thing I think to say is thank you Lord it wasn't my skill in driving it wasn't anything like that it wasn't a matter of being right uh uh-uh. uh It's a matter of the Lord protecting us and maybe answering your prayer for us. 
The Holy Spirit, God himself, dwells in us. We have the resources that we're walking around with. We can talk to God. We can talk to Jesus Christ. We can pray to him. We, we can ask him to do for us anything that comes to our mind. Now, it doesn't mean he does everything that comes to our mind. I'm fairly thankful for that. Because I'm afraid I'd pick a bunch of wrong things. But there is absolutely nothing to fear in our lives. We don't fear death. We know where we're going. We don't fear making terrible mistakes or falling into sin because our sin has been forgiven, past, present, and future. And when we do recognize that we've done something wrong and we have sinned, we are to confess that sin. And if we do, when we do, he is faithful and just to forgive us and take that whole business out of our mind. And that's what it, where it should be because the sanctified Christ, the Holy Lord, is enthroned in our lives. And he cares. He protects us. There is nothing he doesn't do for us. There's nothing to fear. Maranatha. It's a great word. It's a word that says, Come, Lord Jesus. And any time he's ready to he come, I mean, he's ready to come. When the Father says, Okay, it's time. Go. We are going to be taken out of here. I trust that this will be completely empty. People will come to the door and say, where are they? They've gone. They've gone to be with the Lord, presented before the throne. Maranatha, I hope it's soon. I look forward to it. Let's just close with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word. We know there are some demanding things in it. And here we see that there are things which we contribute because we need to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to you. We need to try our best. But we don't fear because we know that our sin is forgiven. Forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ and by all that he has done in laying down his life on the cross of Calvary. We sang earlier today, Calvary covers it all. Indeed it does. Help us to rejoice in that. Help us to be confident in sins forgiven. Help us to be confident in knowing that we are the focal point of the love of God. Bless us, we ask in Jesus' name.